Welcome to the Remarkable Retail Podcast, Season 2, Episode 6. I'm Michael LeBlanc. And I'm Steve Dennis. And this episode is brought to you by the Poirier Group. Well, Steve, it's uh, it's a solo episode today, and um, wanted to delve into the new book coming out. So you've got a new second edition of the book coming out, and we're going to cover off some of the new sections, some of the new content. And 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 I've been really looking forward to this episode actually, because uh, you know, as we've talked over the past number of episodes, um, you know, you you wrote the book just prior uh, to the COVID uh, crisis breaking out. Some things were just endemic to the industry and other things have changed. And it's one of the questions I love asking uh, my guests uh, and I, on our interviews, what's an adjustment versus what's permanent change versus what's just more of the same continuation. So uh, really looking forward to it. So what uh, what are you going to do to, you know, can I get a copy of it now? Can I pre-order it? Um, give us a bit of that 411. Uh, sure. Just, uh, what is it? March. It's March. It, you know, it's March already. So, uh, yeah. TikTok, yeah, it's coming right? up fast. Well, actually, we have a special promotion we're going to do mm. for our listeners. If they want to see the new edition prior to April 13th, all they need to do is pre-order the hardcover from any place books are sold worldwide, and then email us the receipt, and we will send them the ebook version mm. a few weeks in, in advance so they can get a jump start on that. So they can just send the uh, email confirmation to books at sageberryconsulting.com. We'll put the more of the details in the show notes. And then uh, once we get that, we will email them back the um, an ebook file for Kindle, Nook, Kobo, all the different formats. Fantastic. Now, do you want them to put something in the subject line, like heard it on the podcast or something like that? Just yeah, so just I would, yeah, in the subject line, they could say podcast offer just so we know where that came from that would be great well you're a good performance marketer so i would expect no less <laughs> uh, we got we got the attribution team just ready to do all the analysis <laughs> well fantastic yeah so all that information will be in the show notes so uh be sure and take advantage of that so you know before we jump into kind of talking about the um the contents and what's different um i guess i kind of answered the question in my introductory uh, comments about why a second edition so quickly after the first edition and ordinarily you know retail changes but not that much but really the covid crisis has has really upended and i, I guess it really got you thinking about answering that fundamental question right what is different and what do we need to be thinking about as we pull out of this yeah when i get the question about why do this new edition so so quickly uh, i guess the first thing i say is well really the core principles of the book, um, you know, the first edition of the book are are really the same, which is that fundamentally very good is no longer good enough, that that you have to be remarkable. And so all, you know, for the most part, all the reasons that went into that fundamental premise are pretty much the same. The eight essentials framework, which makes up the second part of the book, is still it's the same eight essentials. But, you know, a lot of what I was talking about in the book, the first edition, as you recall, was how disruption was accelerating and that it was getting harder and harder to carve out a place in the unremarkable middle. And that I was really encouraging retailers to transform very, very quickly. And as I think we talked about on an earlier episode, I guess, you know, and obviously there's lots of different situations retailers find themselves in, but if they weren't, if fundamentally, if you weren't changing fast enough, I thought, well, you know, maybe you got three, four, five years right, to right. get this done. Uh, unless you're already in bankruptcy or something. And then just COVID came along and accelerated 
so many pieces of that. So number one, the playing field is just fundamentally reset. Number two, some of the advice that I gave was like, well, you know, too late, basically. Uh, so, so I really wanted to kind of reset the, the point of departure, so to speak, and, um, you know, and then go forward from there, uh, which is just a different, different place. Well, it's, it's interesting about what you talk about, how much time you actually have, right? Because uh, we've watched, or, uh, you know, we've watched Sears in the U.S. I think you described it as the longest liquidation sale in history. Uh, they ripped the Band-Aid up off here in Canada really quickly. But, you, you know, it, it takes years and years and years to unwind. But, you know, when you lock your stores down and people fundamentally change their consumer behavior, even, you know, buy less apparel, that's going to, you know, that's going to transform that timeline just massively, right? That's that external shock that if you weren't ready for it, and we, the, that's the other interesting side of the coin. I think, you know, when I talk to retailers who were, you know, do who were ready for it, like they were in a position. Of some some of it was bad luck, good landlord, bad yeah, landlord sure. in a mall. You know, you're in a mall that relies on commuter traffic and office workers. You know, it's not good. It doesn't matter what what or who you have in terms of talent running that business. It's tough. Um, but for others, you know, they were ready for it. They were already doing the right things. They were, you know, trying to be remarkable, and and it felt like they had uh, a big lead start, either in surviving it or about to, you know, prepare to come out of it. Would you, would you agree? When you, when you look at the winners and losers of the past year, you certainly have a big, I mean, to your point, you just, you certainly have some of it very much driven by, you know, particulars of their location, the sort of categories that could keep, you know, that were stronger digital categories or were essential categories and so forth. So that's absolutely a, a big force. But even within that, I think the, the retailers that really, adopted, you know, what I call this harmonized approach that had mm. strong digital and physical capabilities well integrated, that, you know, that helped them a lot. If they were already good at at some of the digital analytics, you know, that really helped them a lot. So so, you know, not not all the success is just the the folks that, you know, pivoted really quickly or or just kind of the luck of the draw. So back to the tradecraft of the book itself, how much would you say is, is new? You've got, we're going to talk about an entire new section about the, uh, the six new forces of the COVID economy. But, uh, it, and you've said that the eight essentials remain essentially the same. Who knows? Maybe some are more table stakes now than they were before. But you know, what, what, uh, how long did it take you to, to get into this and, and, and to craft that and, and uh, give us a sense of scope and scale one versus edition two? Sure. Well, I don't know that I can give you a good percentage uh, other than say quite a bit, but I can point to a few things. Um, well, first of all, there's, there are a couple entirely new sections. There's a new forward by Sucharita Kodali from Forrester. There's an entirely new introduction. And then there's several of, ch- of the chapters that are significantly revised, but also there's a bunch of new content. So the book itself is actually... Uh, you know, went from, I think like 215 pages to 260 pages or something. So it's about 20% longer. So some of that is yes, the new content and some of it is just, you know, kind of massive revisions. Well, you took a big bet. We were talking off mic about the vaccine. And if we were just saying, can you imagine having conversations like this or the industry having the conversation without the vaccine on the horizon? You know, now I think, I actually think the book is, you know, second edition is even more valuable because you can actually activate on the book in 2021 and 2022, thanks to the vaccine, Think, all these things will pass. In other words, but the the, the book provides such great um, such great guidance, informed by the COVID crisis, and not uh, not just the the basic fundamentals of things like your eight essentials. 
Yeah, well, I, ho- I certainly hope so. Um, I guess, you know, the other thing is that you can't, I mean, I guess a few people can do this, right? But, but you can't really write a book with the idea that, oh, this is going to be read, you know, the first week of May, right? Because <laughs> people, yeah, some people will, will, you know, read it right away and other people will put it on the shelf and get around to it. And, and so, you know, I, I, you know, I wanted to make it of the moment in that it reflects the major forces in some reasonable educated guesses about what the future might look like, but it's not a current events book per se. It's a long-term strategy book that really just, you know, reflects what's transpired in the past, you know, year or so. Again, that circles all the way back to, you know, what's different and what do you need to do to adapt to COVID versus what do you need to think about post COVID and structurally? I mean, that's, that's where I think the book really shines. Um, all right, well, listen, let's, let's dig into one of the new sections really what the, this, uh, this episode is about is this, the six new forces of the COVID economy. Um, so let's, let's start, uh, take us through about, uh, about this, these six, let's start in, uh, with bifurcation 2.0. What's all that about? <laughs> well, uh, some listeners, I imagine, will know that I have uh, said bifurcation more times than perhaps any other word I have said in the past uh, year, other than maybe unprecedented. It's an unprecedented pivot, maybe. pivot, pivot, pivot. Yeah, yeah. That, yeah. that's good. Yeah. But, but, um, uh, well, for those who know about that, and uh, those who don't, I've, I've been talking about retail's great bifurcation for a number of years, which was really this idea that success was being found kind of at either end of the spectrum, really more on the kind of value efficiency, speed, convenience side, mm-hmm. and at the other end of the spectrum, more kind of high-end specialty concepts, and that those retailers that were kind of stuck in the middle weren't strongly in either direction. You know, those that were the ones that have been getting into trouble for many, many years. And, you know, that's frankly where we've seen the vast majority of store closings or or bankruptcies. The reason why I say bifurcation 2.0, just kind of going back to what we were talking about before, was you know COVID just put even more pressure on these retailers uh, because you know they had bad capital structures, or they were already in bankruptcy or on their way to bankruptcy, yeah. or they just couldn't pay the bills on a lot of their stores, and so they were forced yeah. to close a lot. So I don't know that the fundamental consumer behavior of tending to want to spend at either end of the spectrum is is that different it's just there was no place to hide um so the the collapse of the middle i think is you know it's been accelerated as we'll talk about in a second but going away even faster than i imagine the other thing that's part of bifurcation is what's going on economically which has been driving some of this bifurcation which was you know unfortunately well i guess it depends on where you sit but, you know, one of the things that's kind of weird about COVID is as disruptive as it's been is that stock market, you know, the stock market's done really well, incredibly well. Real estate in most places has gone up. And so those people that have a lot of assets that are heavily invested in real estate and or the stock market have done pretty well. And if you were employed making a nice salary and you didn't lose your job, you've got a lot more discretionary income. On the other end of the spectrum, the folks that have you know, no real participation or very little participation in these assets. You know, they didn't benefit from any of that. And that, you know, and I think in a lot of markets, certainly in the U.S., the amount of unemployment has been disproportionately harder on the, say, bottom 25% or so of the market. So you've got this split of economic outcomes. And so the rich, you know, they got a lot more money. They're driving a lot of spending, particularly on higher-end stuff. And the folks that are, you know, struggling to make ends meet, 
are tending to shift more of their spending to the lower price, more value-oriented retailers. So it's really just creating this polarization or bifurcation at a whole other level. So that's what I mean by bifurcation 2.0. It's really amplifying something that we were seeing before this this um, spread of wealth. You know, the, the the end of the middle class, so to speak, which is connected yeah. to the end of the middle. Um, and it is worrisome. I think you know when I speak to retailers at the value end of the spectrum, they're worried because there's. You know, there's probably I, I saw a number in the U.S. twenty percent unemployment at the at the lower household income levels. Right, exactly, like it's it's yeah. massive, and uh, that's not going to turn around until services come back, and that's not going to be a flick of a switch, despite the miracle of the vaccine. So it is it is worrisome, I think. Um, you know, that being said, NRF NRF's numbers published uh, forecast for twenty twenty one with they're calling for huge growth, uh, driven by all these other phenomena like the you know buying stuff for your house and not traveling and it's all a lot of it's finding not going to restaurants a lot of it's finding way into the retail so um interesting all right let's talk about an accelerating acceleration uh, yeah. I practice to say that actually. So I yeah, well, I I, I, I didn't want to call it the great acceleration because our friend Carbute and some others have have used that, but but it's it's kind of the same idea. But a big part of the the first book and what I've been speaking about for the last few years is that so many trends have been accelerating. You know, that disruption is happening happening at an ever greater pace. But then we get into COVID and it goes, you know, to a whole new level. So some of this is, you know, e-commerce was growing 14, 15, 16% a year. You know, now it's growing 25, 30, 35%. Uh, some technology like uh, contactless payment, my online pickup in store, live streaming. You know, you kind of go through the list of technologies mm-hmm. that people have been talking about having an impact. And, you know, the adoption of those technologies has been accelerated by by multiple years. And so, you know, the one that I think it gets a little bit more like people act as if it's kind of a new thing where it isn't, is really the blurring of the lines between right, digital right. and physical. I mean, I, you know, I, you know, we've talked about that multiple times here. I've been talking about it forever. So I, I think that's really more retailers waking up to it. The ones that weren't ready and were sort of forced to, but anyway, I think, I think almost every trend has been massively accelerated and you know the big question is how many of these you know will these growth rates be maintained or will will we see some settling down which you know i think we will for sure it's just a a question of which areas yeah it's it's literally the billion dollar multi-billion dollar question we saw acceleration here in canada 70 percent year over year growth in e-commerce we were a few years behind and it's a global phenomenon so it really is unique in that way as well right all countries suddenly reset to have this great acceleration um, number three, reallocation and the redefinition of essential. Yeah, so we started to touch touch on this, but um, y- you know, we've seen this massive shift in how people are spending their money. Uh, you know, obviously, with people not working in an office so much, uh, you know, commuting expenses, gas, etc., has really dropped. Uh, nicer apparel, both because of work reasons, but also you know, not going out, not traveling. Has has declined considerably. Um, you know, people aren't spending on vacations for the most part, and so forth. But then we've seen this big investment in things related to work from home, like office equipment and so forth. But all the home upgrades, uh, much more eating at home, working out at home. So this this very big re- reallocation, as we talked about earlier, is affecting different retailers differently. You know, the big question again is how much of this will will really persist as we get into more of a recovery. I mean, I certainly think that on the one hand, people will be very eager to 
get back to traveling and get back to, mm-hmm. you know, entertainment out, out and eating out and, and so forth. Um, so maybe it's the work from home piece that will kind of keep this reallocation at a, at a heightened level. We'll be right back. This episode of the Remarkable Retail Podcast is sponsored by the Poirier Group. Do you want to move faster, streamline your processes, and have larger margins? If you're a retailer in 2021, chances are you do. The Poirier Group's award-winning team of industrial engineers and performance improvement experts specialize in driving results for retailers and grocers across North America. From reducing call center wait times to improving stocking and replenishment processes and warehouses to seamlessly integrating IT systems and more, they are your trusted partners you need. TPG doesn't just design solutions, they leverage years of actual industry experience to implement them and set you up for long-term sustainable success. Just ask their clients, over 15 years of business, 100% positive review. Visit theporiagroup.com slash remarkable to learn more today. Yeah, that, that last part, I think, is one of the longest lasting implications because the work from home wasn't really a big, there wasn't a lot of momentum for work from home pre-COVID. It, it existed, but there, I wouldn't call it momentum, you know, outside of the tech companies and even within, there wasn't a lot of uh, buzz about it, so to speak. But now that's, and it has tremendous implications and it has implications and brings about your fourth, uh, your fourth one, which is power consolidation among, and the last men standing. What's that about? Well, a couple of things here. One, one is, you know, related to the, the reallocation um, and the shift from online um, away from physical is that, um, you know, this whole collapse of the middle is that a lot of the retailers that were on the ropes are going out of business or closing a ton of stores. And so as those, you know, it's probably easier to think about it in terms of, you know, mall anchors, right? You know, you've got all these JCPenney stores, et cetera, that are closed. So, you know, some of those categories have been shrinking for a while. Some of them are very contracted during the COVID times, but presumably will start to come back. But, you know, that, that volume is going to go somewhere. So as these mm-hmm. retailers go out of business or they close a massive amount of stores, then presumably that market share is going to be claimed by the more powerful, better retailers in the space. So I think the, the rich get richer, so to speak, in the, in the business do- design model. So we'll see, see this market share consolidate around the stronger players. I think the other part of this consolidation, is, as we've already started to see, and I, I think it's actually going to pick up pace a lot, is a lot of acquisitions or, you know, whether it's acquisitions of weaker players or acquisitions of, you know, we've seen this couple companies that have been buying up essentially um, intellectual property and yeah. relaunching like Pier One has been or is about to be relaunched as an e-commerce platform. So, so you know, you got these powerful players with a lot of cash, strong balance sheets. You've got a bunch of other players that are very weak and might get sold out of bankruptcy or at fire sale prices. So I think in some categories, probably like the department store category, you know, you may have six, seven, eight players today. My guess mm. is in a couple of years, you have one or two. There's just not enough business to go around in some of the more um, contracted categories or the ones that have just been weaker over the longer term. So I, I guess I hinted at this next one with uh, when I started talking about work from home as a thing and, and a permanent, but you call it uh, rewiring, basically, the great rewiring. And and uh, I can see that in, in key industries, but I think there's a lot going on, whether it's travel or or how does that extend into into retail as you think about the implications of, of some of the uh, the more broader, longer lasting consumer behavior impacts? Yeah, so I borrowed this term from uh, Rashad Tabakawala, who wrote a, a blog 
post uh, called The Great Rewiring a few months back. We had Rashad on um, mm-hmm. last season. And you know, he makes he makes the point around a number of different areas where things are, he would argue, forever changed. So work from home is probably the biggest one. Uh, more entertainment from home, maybe more eating at home. You know, will there be as much business travel even when we get mm-hmm. post-COVID? Because maybe we've learned that, man, it just takes a lot of time and money to go fly across the country to go see I guess that we've client. Re- we've relearned that one, right? I mean, you and I lived through 9-11, and that was the coming right. out of that. It was like, hey, I don't really need to do all this business travel. But it bounced back with a you know, huge, but maybe this time is different, right? Because this well, affects everybody right. all the time, right? Yeah, I think that's the hard thing. Like, I think it's very easy to get your head around work from home uh, being a much bigger factor. I, I have a harder time believing that leisure travel, you know, I, I, I think there will be people that are just dying to go mm-hmm. travel mm-hmm. again once, once it's safe and if they have the money to do so. Uh, but business travel, I have a lot of questions about. I think as, as people mm-hmm. have, you know, bought their Pelotons and uh, started <laughs> working out <laughs> from home, you know, does that really keep the fitness industry, you know, the kind of traditional mm-hmm. health club business? Is that going to be forever changed? Um, you know, what's going to happen with restaurants? Again, I think people will be very excited to go back out and eat in a nice restaurant. But, you know, we've also developed some new habits about about cooking at home. You know, entertainment, unfortunately, a lot of arts organizations have have gone out of business or, or you know, are really serious mm-hmm. trouble. So, it, it, you know, I think it remains to be seen precisely how this will play out. But mm-hmm. I certainly think, you know, to your point, like this is so massive, has affected so many people for, you know, what's going to be a good 18 months, right, before yeah. we're back to any some, some um, semblance of whatever you want to call normal. So, so I, yeah, I think it's hard to predict exactly the way this plays out, but, you know, you've, you've actually got to be thinking about it, I think, pretty, pretty carefully and starting to take action to position yourself for that. Well, two quick, two quick comments on the business travel. I talk to a lot of merchants who are loving having their merchandising group not have to travel the world to find vendors and meet with vendors. Now, that, that you know, you need once in a while to go see and, you know, you don't want to buy products from a hotel room. You want to go see them made and everything, but they're really loving that. Because that sure. was a real grind part of being a merchant, right? You're you're on the road, particularly early in the year to China. It's a long trip, and you know it's a long way to be away from the family, and it's expensive, right? These things, there's an economic benefit which is which is there. And and a quick comment on the restaurants. You know, it's been interesting. I've been thinking about um, talking to some restaurateurs, and they're saying, "Listen, consumers are going to be different. They're going to be more educated. Their expectations are going to be higher. So as much as they want to get out and experience restaurants, I you know the general feeling is for many consumers there'll be a bigger number of those consumers who are just way more discerning and say, yeah. oh, I could have made that at home. And um, right. so I think it's going to, it's going to force them to, to up their game. And a lot of industries, I think we'll have to figure this out as, as we kind of go along. Uh, last one, uh, hybridization. Yeah. So this is the one. So when, when I go back and look at the other five, I think in all cases, I could make a pretty compelling argument that whatever we have seen during COVID and, you know, what we're likely to see for the next few months will start to moderate. You know, I can, I can see it pulling back. <laughs> Hybridization, I think, is the trend that will be accelerating for the foreseeable future. And so what I mean by hybridization is really this idea of the blending of various things. So for the most part, it's the blending of physical and virtual 
in more profound ways. So one way to think about it is the hybrid role of the stores. You know, we touched on this in a prior episode about how, you know, for the most part, stores were places to go buy things and take mm-hmm. them home with you. Now, over time, obviously, as e-commerce has been growing, the role has changed. But what COVID did was start to really put more um, pressure, I guess you could say, on the role of the store being a fulfillment hub, right? So whether that's buy online, pick up in store or, or curbside pickup or e-commerce order fulfillment. But I think also as people are really taking a hard look at real estate costs and maybe shrinking their stores, you know, there's more of a showroom component. On the other end of the spectrum, I think, you know, with the commoditization of a lot of retail, you're going to see certain retailers that like really want to invest in, you know, for lack of a better term, the kind of more theatrical or demonstration aspects of retail when things are safe. So I think the role of the physical store, which has been absolutely changing for many, many years, is really gone to a whole new level. The other hybridization is really more around format deployment. So certainly you have plenty of retailers that, you know, the conglomerates that might have different sort of formats, you know, Old Navy, Gap, Banana Republic. But what I think we're starting to see is, um, you know, say with Nordstrom Local or even with, um, Apple, Macy's, and some others that are creating new smaller formats to perform a different sort of function, perhaps, you know, more of a pickup location or uh, be more tailored to a local market or a micro segment. And so I think when you, when you start talking about some of these brands, it's not going to be, well, you know, there's, there's just this one flagship version of the store. There'll be many more iterations. And so maybe as retailers close some of their bigger stores, because as more stuff moves online, the economics don't work as well. They'll actually create smaller formats, which will be fulfillment hubs or pickup hubs or service centers or what have you. You know, to, to kind of wrap it up this, um, or to wrap up the conversation, I, I want to ask you this question. So when you sit with your clients and, and, or imagine yourself, um, you know, with a CEO of a company and say, listen, to, to be able to thrive in the post COVID economy, your organization needs to be different somehow than it is today. What would one or two of those things that they need to be better at or different than pre-COVID? Um, other than reading the second edition of your book, of course, step one. <laughs> right. Um, right. Right. But, I mean, but, but fundamentally, I, I think organiza- organizationally, culturally, what do organizations need to be to thrive post-COVID? Well, the things I'm going to say are, I think, all things that have been important for a while. They're just amplified. So, number one is agility, right? I mean, you, mm-hmm. you just have to be able to respond much more quickly. Not not necessarily because I think there's going to be another pandemic, but who knows. Right. But, but, you know, technology evolves much more quickly. Consumer preferences change much more quickly. The competitive playing field uh, is constantly changing. So, I think you have to build a lot more agility. You have to be much more invested in a culture of experimentation. And I think, again, you know, another old idea, but I think you have to really go much deeper on understanding customer behavior because the kind of one size fits all, or even, you know, a few sizes fit many orientation of a lot of particularly big retailers, mm-hmm. you know, just hasn't served them very well. Like, you know, a lot of big retailers have missed interesting segments because they took too much of a, you know, average kind of <laughs> approach to, to the market. And I think particularly as some of these new technologies come out, um, figuring out which ones are going to be adopted, which ones are going to be just like the 
you know, flash in the pan or whatever is, is harder and harder. So if you don't have that level of customer insight and you don't have a test and learn culture and you don't have the agility to respond built in, uh, you know, just, you just can lose a lot of market share pretty quickly as we've seen. And we're back with another remarkable or forgettable. Steve, let's kick it off with Target. Blockbuster earnings. What do you think? Well, it's hard not to look at the earnings and not say they're pretty remarkable. I think uh, something like they had more incremental revenue in the past year than they did the last 10 years combined or something crazy. Digital sales were blockbuster. I mean, pretty much firing on all cylinders. So, uh, yeah, pretty remarkable. I think the other part of what they talked about was this big investment they're going to make in their stores and fulfillment mm-hmm. capabilities more broadly, which I think really speaks to some of the stuff we've already talked about is this even more blurred world and how important stores are becoming in fulfilling the whole customer journey. So yeah, very remarkable. I think the key thing to watch going forward is going to be, it's going to be a lot harder for them to post these kind of numbers as, as physical retail starts to open up more and, um, you know, there's just more spreading of the, um, spreading of consumer spending and, you know, less government stimulus and and things like that, which they warned about, but yeah, pretty impressive. Yeah. I think all retailers are going to have weird comps, right? Because, uh, you know, it's hard to comp off uh, a rush on toilet paper, uh, news from Disney, which, uh, you know, it's actually took me a little bit off guard, but they've been doing some strange announcements about, you know, movies on, you know, where do movies play and, and talk about what their plans are for stores. Well, they announced they're closing a bunch of stores. I think about 20% of their store count. And it's a little bit curious, um, you know, again, something we talked about a lot, but I think the, the way they talked about it seemed to be very much about thinking about online and physical retail as separate things. Mm -hmm, And I think mm -hmm. we've, we've learned pretty strongly that that's a bad way to think about it. And, um, you know, to me, anytime you close stores, you're making yourself less customer relevant. Now I don't have enough access to their data to know whether or not, you know, they could close some stores or relocate some stores, but it's surprising to me if you've got a strong brand that you would, uh, and particularly as physical retail, uh, starts to open up more, it's a little, it's a little interesting to me that they would close so many stores. So, uh, remarkable in a bad way, perhaps. Yeah, and I've I've found them entirely when I've been in their average store unremarkable. I mean, there's just pile high, let it fly kind of merchandising, and which which seems to me always to be a miss uh, in terms of the experience. So I don't know. Maybe you'd think they would amongst all people would get experience uh, right a little bit more than others. Let's talk about ThreadUp. So they're they're getting ready for an IPO. Uh, there's this big talk in the industry over the past years that the reuse market is bigger than fast fashion in ten years. Of course, that's all by the people who you know like ThreadUp. <laughs> right. That so I don't know how much there is behind it. But what do you think about uh, that market? And what do you think about ThreadUp going in the uh, IPO market? Well, the resale market, like all of apparel, has certainly been pretty tough the last year. But yeah, it was a hot category going into the pandemic. I think there's certainly reasons to believe that it's going to grow a lot as we get into 2022 and beyond. I think some predictions of the market like, you know, tripling or quadrupling mm-hmm. in the next five years. A ton of competition for sure. Thread up's a little bit more mid-price than some of the other guys like um, Real Real and Vestaire. Also companies that have gone to the public markets and and raise money. So a lot of money going in, 
yeah. a lot of interest in the category. The thing I think that's really so, so I think it's remarkable in that, you know, there's going to be a lot of activity here for the next couple, couple years, at least the thing though, that's so vexing, even when you step back from the impact of Good the word. pandemic is Good all word. these guys are losing a ton of money. Yeah. And so you can get it from the impact of the pandemic, but even before the pandemic, uh, I think real reels uh, operating margins were like negative forty percent or something. But uh, but Poshmark and and others are are all losing a lot of money. So uh, you know, I don't. It's hard to imagine how all these guys, even with the the growth that they may start to get, are are going to be able to make it. Well, it seems they're paying attention to unit economics because I was reading some of the documentation behind the IPO and they're talking about their model changing to almost you know, like 70 or more percent consignment, which means they don't have to outlay a lot of money. They're just become a facilitator. So um, I think that that uh, has changed in their model, whether that's, you know, looking at uh, we need to firm up our economics or, the, or that's just what customers want to do. Yeah. Threat up too is also much more of providing a service to other retailers. So they're partnered up mm-hmm. with a bunch of retailers. So I suspect part of what helps them is that it's really the retailers that are bearing the customer acquisition and some of the marketing costs. So that may put them in a bit better position, but their lower price points also make the unit economics tougher. So I, I don't know. I mean, it's just, it's yeah. pretty hard to evaluate this right in the middle of the pandemic and, and just with it so early, but uh, certainly a hot category one to watch. So let's talk about Nordstrom and this, and this company Tonal, uh, which is kind of reminds me of um, Mirror, which is a high tech at home exercise. You know, Mirror was uh, invested in by Lululemon, now completely owned by Lululemon. We know Peloton, uh, Peloton is hot. Um, and talk about this. What's what's up with Nordstrom and, and uh, this brand? Well, this is too early or too small a scale, I guess, to give it really a, a strong remarkable. But I think it's pretty pretty interesting, both in general, the number of partnerships we're seeing between big retailers and uh, and some of these up and coming brands, which I think really can be a match made in he- heaven done right. Because retailers, and in Nordstrom's case, you know, they get to partner with a brand. That maybe gives them some better credentials in the fitness, athleisure-related uh, category. Maybe attract some new customers, drive traffic to the store. So I think there's a mm-hmm. lot of advantage, you know, just differentiation. Sure. So I think a lot of things that are good for the the retailer, and then for these smaller brands, it gets them a ton of exposure and lowers their acquisition costs. So I think this overall trend is pretty interesting. And uh, Nordstrom's been pretty aggressive of partnering up with some of these newer brands. So it's not really a, a change for them. It's, uh, but, but this is a little bit getting them more into a slightly different category rather than kind of pure fashion. All right. A couple other quick things. Uh, not, I guess uh, the folks from Saks weren't listening to our podcast a couple of episodes ago because they've gone ahead and done the, the thing. They've gone and <laughs> spun their e-commerce site into a separate business, which, which boggles my mind a little bit. But talk about it briefly for the listeners and, and the folks at home. Well, it's just dumb. I mean, I, I don't. I mean, it's very opportunistic in terms of, I guess, raising money because there's uh, these high valuations for fashion e-commerce companies. Mm-hmm, but, mm-hmm. but it is so anti everything we've seen about what makes retailers remarkable in terms of integrating the customer experience and leveraging data and all. You know, er- everything that has been important um, as an underlying trend, this, this goes against. So they've got a bunch of contracts, I guess, to try to coordinate better, but you know, in essence, they put their dot com business in competition with their stores and that's just yeah. a really bad idea. Uh, anyway. All right. Well, that was uh, another episode of remarkable or forgettable. We'll be back next week. 
Uh, listen, let's bring this episode to a uh, to a close. We've got uh, we'll get back next week to uh, more great uh, more great guests to lend us their insight and tap into their wisdom. But for now, Steve, take us home. Well, if you like what you heard, subscribe on your favorite podcast platform so you can catch up with all our great interviews and insights and new episodes will show up every week. And please take a minute to drop us that elusive five-star review. I'm Steve Dennis, the expanded and completely revised second edition of my best-selling book, Remarkable Retail, How to Win and Keep Customers in the Age of Disruption, is out in April. Pre-order your copy right now at Amazon, Indigo, bookshop.org, or just about anywhere else books are sold. And I'm Michael LeBlanc, producer and host of the Voice of Retail podcast. And you can learn more about me on www.meleblanc.co. Have a safe week, everyone. And Steve, talk to you again soon.